So I've asked Jen to say a few words. She has put up no small uh, resistance to this request of mine, but uh, she finally surrendered to the Lord's leading in her life yesterday. <laughs> and so I'm going to give her a few minutes here. Give the mic. wrote it out. <laughs> Dear Providence, thank you, each of you, for allowing me to love God and to experience God's love through each of you. So much of what I did over the last 15 years was what so many of you have done and will continue to do for Providence. And as I was thinking, these are the things that we have in common. Yearned to know and love our Father, growing spiritually as I and we sought Him to, through worship, through sermons, CGs, fellowship, and service right alongside one another. Cared for my family, my sons, as they watched us work out our faith, sought to show myself loyal to our king by using my spiritual gifts of serving, teaching, and leading within whatever part of the body God needed at that time, and worked to share our savior with our neighbors as we leaned into daily living with an eternal calling. Yet, what has made me a bit unique within this church body is my love and role with Jason Jantz. And as his wife, my greatest joy has been to journey at his side as my full God-created self, which thank you and thank you, body, for letting me be Jen Jans through the years and us as a complete and unified couple. Through that union with him, I was able to do some different things than maybe some of you. I got to hear his first thoughts of God visions, whether it was on the pillow, in the car, in a meeting, whatever. I heard so many of those first visions with you. I got to walk through God's doors opening doors because of your faith. I got to feel his personal struggles and failures. I got to bear his wounds from attacks. I got to listen to his God growth moments, and I got to watch God smile upon him. And then I got to see God's name proclaimed through his work. That's what made my role a little different as an elder's wife. And although his work as an elder is done, his work, our work, within Providence as a follower of Christ and as a part of this body is not done. It's not done. Our work at Cross Purpose is not done. 
And I am planning on continuing to be, I want you to be my husband for a really long time, uh, and complete and unified, so that's not done either. Uh, therefore, my journey by his side is actually really alive and well. I just might be looking at different things, right? We're gonna look at a few different things. And as you all do, I will also continue to love our Father through this body of believers. I will continue to care, as you will, for our families. We will continue to show ourselves loyal to our King and to work to share our Savior with anyone who will hear. So thank you, Providence. I have been blessed to be a part of you, and may we continue to live this journey together and may God continue to bless our journey together. Love you, Providence. It has been a joy to live in your shadow. It really has, because everybody that knows us understands what I mean. Uh, when I left undergrad, I made a commitment in my heart to serve the Church of Jesus Christ as a pastor uh, for 40 years. And uh, Spurgeon, my son, almost uh, reminds me of this. Whenever there's a providency kind of moment or a cross-purpose moment, he reminds me back to 15 years ago when we started. All we had was this little teeny Mazda MPV minivan that was red. And he's always like, it all started from a red minivan, Dad. And look what's happened. And um, So as I look back on the last... Uh, 27 years, I'm now resigning uh, from being a pastor in a church, and so people have asked why things are going so well, and we moved past the red minivan. Three and a half years ago, I sensed the Lord moving me, and uh, I was actually sitting there studying for a sermon, and I told my wife, I just said, I, I told Jenna, I said, I don't, I, don't, I don't have the same energy I used to have for this. And she basically said, well, why don't we just turn it over to the young people, Jason? And she walked into the house, and I was like, what? What did you just say? Uh, that was the first seed. Um, and so we are actually turning it over to the young people. They're all younger than us, except for Ray. We needed a 78-year-old on the team. So, But I soon took the founders to dinner, and I told them that, that this has happened in my heart, you know. Um, and this has actually been confirmed in my heart and in Jen's heart and in the heart of a multitude of counselors. And it has taken longer than I thought, three and a half years, to get to this day. Um, and that's nobody's fault uh, for that. It just took a long time. And so today is my final sermon as an elder. And so I looked, like, what passages do you preach uh, at a time like this? And I chose Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Because I, Paul, first of all, spent longer at Ephesus than he did at any city. And he's also writing that letter from prison, so he had this idea of kind of final words on his mind, and so I thought there's some resonance there, and as I read through Ephesians and Colossians, I settled on this. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23 says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and all your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted 
when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So I have three thoughts I really want to leave with you in my final sermon as pastor. And the first one is simply this. I am deeply grateful to y'all. That's my first point. And I say that because it's a providency word. I was preaching a passage 10 years ago and I said, in the Bible, in the American church, most people think when they read a chapter that when God says you, he's talking about you. And he's not, it's a plural you. He's talking about the church, y'all. Like all those promises, all those instructions are to bodies of people, right? And I'll never forget Lauren Steidel from the South said, you mean y'all, that's what it should say, y'all. And I think it's actually been kind of like, that is the key, is if you just took every time the New Testament says you and put y'all in there, you'll actually actually see an entirely different way of reading the scriptures, which is why I believe the church is the hope of the world and is the greatest thing going, because the the words were to y'all. So I'm deeply grateful to y'all, first of all, for like Paul says here, your faith in the Lord Jesus. Like you may look to a pastor as a leader, but fundamentally, I've walked out my faith with you. Most people have the idea that the pastor has the strongest faith, but for this man, it's not been true. Although I think I've been strong in my faith in some areas, your faith has strengthened me when oftentimes mine has been weak. As I see your faith and your love for God, I see a passion for him, and it's a testimony to me. Your prayer life, I think many people in this church have what I call the prayer reflex. The moment a need comes up, they start to pray. That's just not me. It's been good for me to see this. Your trust in God. I, I actually believe, some of you believe God can do anything. Nothing scares you, you know? And uh, that's been a testimony to me. Your perseverance through trials and still holding on to God in the middle of them. We've had so much sickness and cancer and, and death and, and you hold on to God. So I've always felt that there were people here with deeper spiritual waters even than my own. And for that, I am grateful. But then for you then to trust me to help lead, guide, and counsel and teach you and to encourage you to stay as people of the book, this has been a blessing to me. I am grateful. And then for those of you that have been in leadership over the years, we have walked through some heavy waters, even through what Ruth Haley Barton calls in her book, The Unfixables. Like they were things that could not be fixed and there were relationships that could not be repaired. And you persevered and hung in there clinging to the Lord. The church has never had a split. It's never had a faction. It's never had a true crisis. There's been a steady hand with all the people from elders to deacons to women's leadership council. And for that, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to you all for your faith in the Lord Jesus. But then he says this, for your love for all God's people. I needed to find a place where the love of Jesus could be pushed to its limits if I was going to stay in the faith myself. And the fact that this church took on from its mission from day one, 11 Anglos and one Latino said, we're going to bring all ethnicities together. I needed to see that happen. And the multi-ethnic vision, you just saw it on display here this morning. I met with a pastor on Friday. He was a pastor of a multi-ethnic church. And he said, J uh, Jason, my, my worship team is all fighting. One wants to do uh, high volume and no harmony. And the other one wants real harmony. And da, da, da. I said, we've been down that road a hundred times. 
And he goes, I'm ready to just, I'm just tired. I'm ready to throw in the towel. I said, you can't. You can't because the gospel, if the gospel cannot bring people together on a worship team, then what gospel is it, right? In fact, in Revelations, when he says to this church, you've left your first love, I was told in Bible camp that was you're reading your Bible and praying. No, it was the multi-ethnic vision, your love for all of God's people. You left that is what he was saying in Revelation. So that's been a huge thing for me to be grateful to you for. And loving our church family well. We're known for our love for outsiders, but if you're part of this body, you also know there's a radical love for the insiders. And I've always felt like that should be the priority in the covenant community, that fundamentally, according to Galatians, we love each other first, and then we love those outside the covenant community. But I have seen people hurt, and you just run to it, just like the body. We require community of our covenant partners, and that relational timber, I think, is part of what makes this place special. But then loving our neighbor. From the first 16 ministries we started in the first four years to cross-purpose in the last 11, it is now one of the top 20 largest nonprofits in the state of Colorado. We started this little band of people that just said, we're going to love our neighbors radically, and you are known as the love your neighbor people. I was speaking to a group of funders a couple of weeks ago, and they said, they called me back and said, Jason, we all agree that the, the organizations we interviewed Yours does the most transforming work in people's lives. That's because of you, and I'm so proud of you. This week I met with six churches all together who are working on uh, helping this cross-purpose site and loving their neighbor well, and and then to see what's happening with the Venezuelan congregation. I mean, it's just stunning. I I was at a meeting with the mayor this week, and I said, you know, you got to go see what's happening over here at Providence with this Venezuelan congregation. I said, they found over like 200 people homes and, and, and Mayor Johnson goes, how are you doing it? And I said, it's just Juan. You just got to see Juan. <laughs> like, I don't know how the guy does it, but, you know, what is that? It's just like, and I know it's more than, than that, right? But it's just like, it's, it's the power of a loving group of people. But then your love. Uh, my college a buddy said, I, I want to come to your church because you're going to sob for 45 minutes. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Your love for me and my family. You've been a family for me when we have not had family. Suffers with us when we encountered pain. Partners with us when we fostered a dozen kids. You've been forgivers of us when we failed. You've sat with us in the hospital when I've had my heart problems. You've been helpers to us when we are down. You've been partners to us in raising our children. We could have never done it without you. You have friendships with my kids. That means a lot to me. And you've been patient with me. If you were here during my fiery 30s when I was so confident and certain and, you know, prophetic, uh, to then in my 40s and to the midlife and the dark night of the soul and the doubts and And now into my 50s, as I follow where he's leading me, you've been patient with me. And this is significant to me. I just want you to know that. I'm so grateful to you all. In a lot of the great stories in literature, you have a return to the beginning as a metaphor for life. In the Odyssey, Odysseus comes back to the home and the woman that he loves. And I just listened to The Alchemist this past week again. And Santiago returns to the tree in the church where the treasure is. But my story has actually been the opposite. Uh, my life is not a return to home. The homes I grew up in, my, my hometown in Wisconsin, and then moving out here to the suburbs, um, 
I just never felt that was my home. And my family I grew up in was angry and abusive and lived in poverty and kind of light on love. And my first two jobs that I had, my vocational home, I had 10 years as a flooring installer, and I hated that. Uh, but then I became an assistant pastor in, in a ministry environment of poverty wages and poor management and no accountability and a disempowering environment to me as a visionary. And then my first two churches, I've only been part of three churches in my whole life, but I didn't align with a rules orientation, a Sunday-centric model, a building focus, or the one whose message to the neighborhood was primarily one of just conversion. Just get converted and everything's better. I just couldn't, I just wasn't there. And our posture to the community was more separation than it was uh, being in partnership. And so I didn't fit and my values didn't align. And so in the fundamental four environments of my life, I felt like a stranger in my own world. So 15 years ago, this was a quest to find a home. So in my home, we changed our location from the Burbs into Five Points. And it, there's no way when you looked at us, it would look like we would fit into this neighborhood. But I found a home in this neighborhood. And I'm going to die in this neighborhood. My dream is to get buried at Riverside Cemetery, which has been abandoned. And it, it looks like the worst place, but it's the oldest cemetery in Colorado. And I just want to put my bones in the dirt in this neighborhood. My vocational home. How, where are we going to work jobs where we actually wanted, we could buy into the culture and the environment. So we couldn't find any, so we created our own. I'm still working a job that I created myself. And being in the work environment here in this ministry is a daily joy. It is a dream to be here. And the church, we started a church. We just built the church we wanted to be part of. And they say there's no perfect church, and I just disagree. For me, this is the perfect church. You're the perfect church. That doesn't mean, you're, that means, that doesn't mean we're all perfect. It's just perfect for us. Um, you know, a pastor said to me, Jason, if you would just trim your sermons down or your services down to an hour, you'd be a mega church. And I said, and why would I ever want to do that, right? <laughs> but then family, we found a family. Jen's family lives out of state. My bio family is not together. And, and in a very literal way, you are our family. So I didn't have this Greek mythology story of returning home to the first place. My story is more like the Exodus. I had to leave a place and go to a place I did not know, but I have found the promised land, and it is here. So people have their complaints about the church, but you're not going to find it with me. Why? Because it's home to me. This is home. So special thanks to a few people. Uh, the founding elder team of Juan and Courtney Pena, Jerome and Martha Groskoff, Josh and Katie Larson, you guys have been here since day one. I can't say thanks enough. A special thank you to Josh and Katie because over the last three years, I don't think anybody worked harder for this day than you guys did, and I love you guys. You're some of the finest people that I know. And there are some people who put in a decade or more here with us. You know, only four out of ten American Christians stay in a church for ten years or longer. And we have 38. Joel and Lauren Steitel, Jerome and Martha Groskoff, Scott and Christy Lanzen, uh, Josh and Katie Larson, Gina Livingston, Brian McCoy, Juan and Courtney Pena, Kevin and Sarah Root, Andrew and Joanna Gosvich, Ray and Patty Brim, William Cruz, Tim and Amanda Dwyer, Mary and Henry Hendrickson, Jean Johnston, Felipe and Monica Moreno, Alvaro Pena, Nicolette Chambella, Antoinette Johnson, the Champlains in Turkey, 
Terry and Marsha Bratton, Pam and Nate Austin, uh, the Gatia family. These, I just want to say thank you to you. It wouldn't have been possible without 38 people putting in a decade here together, shoulder to shoulder, and I'm deeply grateful to y'all, and I hope you feel that. But secondly, I have a deep heart for us all. Because I can say thanks to y'all, but Jen and I are going to be part of us. And I have a deep heart for us here that Paul actually maps out in verses 17 through 21. He first talks about a spirit of wisdom and revelation. My heart for you as a pastor is that you would continue pursuing Jesus and that would move beyond simply what am I supposed to do and not do, that you would cultivate a maturity of a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that your faith will turn from pure knowledge into wisdom on how to live. You care less about the Ten Commandments and more about the eight Beatitudes. That is a life of wisdom and revelation. And Jesus must be pursued to be known. And he's not hard to find, okay? But because our minds are regularly pummeled with values from the world that are not his values, uh, we have to constantly pursue him. And I believe that the life of Jesus has in it what you need to navigate this world. You want to know how to be a good parent? Just follow Jesus. Just read it and say, how would Jesus parent? You say, well, Jesus wasn't a parent. I've yet to find any kid who would say as an adolescent, yeah, my parents were really like Jesus and I just can't stand them, right? <laughs> Kids love Jesus like parents. He has everything in it that you need. Then he says, though your eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is the idea that your heart has some ahas to it. That your faith deepens and you start constantly seeing the path and what does he talk about? He goes, in the area of hope, the hope to which he has called you. That your eyes would be enlightened, that you'd have these aha moments to uh, have this hope. The hope of what? To be who you were called to be. It is a, just a, one of the greatest joys of a pastor is to watch people on a journey of growth. So you have this hope to be who you were called to be and a hope beyond this life as well. But then he says also to the riches of his glorious inheritance. The Bible talks about at salvation, the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon you in all wisdom and insight. So there is a temporal riches here just in the fact that you can actually partake of everything as one of God's children. But then also in the way he has for you stored up in eternity. But then he says this, also the other aha is his power. He says in the passage, it's the incomparably great power to us who believe. I really, he says, I want you to understand this power. It's the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is at work in your life. Amen. Colossians actually says this is at work in you daily. I believe the power of a church is directly linked to the number of its members who are being empowered by God, the power that brings dead things to life. So know him better and have a life characterized by this hope, by these riches, and by this power. Why do I give you this challenge? Because this, this has always been my prayer for you. They say you can take the, the boy out of the country. You can't take the country out of the boy. I think you can take the pastor or the shepherd out of the pasture, but you can't take the pastor out of the shepherd. Just because I sit down there next week doesn't mean I feel any different about this idea. And I give you this challenge as a prayer because the job of a pastor I've always felt was a serious job. 
For 27 years, I woke up every day with the biblical responsibility that one day the Bible says I was going to give an account to God for how I led the flock. Hebrews 13, 17 says, elders will have to give an account for how they pastored the church and let them do it with joy, not with groaning. I actually believe that in a really literal sense, that there's going to be a day where I'm going to stand before the Lord. I mean, it's the only time in scripture where I think someone stands before God and has to give an account for somebody besides themselves. Why would you ever sign up for that job? Right? But I can tell when I walk up, he says, so talk to me about Gina Livingston. Oh, Jesus. Been part of her life for 30 years. Saw her adopt that great man who wants to be a pastor named Isaiah. I just think she's one of God's finest. Lord. Tell me about this Antoinette Johnson. Oh, yeah. She radically changed my life. Became our daughter and uh, is now a light to the whole community. I just can't say enough great about Antoinette. Amen. What about that Brian McCoy in the back row? Well, yeah, God, he skipped a couple services because of Bronco games at 11, but uh, <laughs> he came to Christ in my kitchen and he may have missed a few services, but he never missed an opportunity to help a church member who was in need. And, and what about that Jenny Robbins? Oh, yeah, Jenny. She almost was a goner, but you brought her back to life. And for the last 10 years, she's been my community group leader. And it's, it's hard to find anybody more caring in my life. And What about Joel and Lauren Steidel? Oh, I lived by them for a long time, two blocks away. And they actually put me to shame on how they loved the neighborhood and how faithful they were and generous they were. And... What about Felipe and Monica? Oh, yeah, they, they came here and met, we met at an immigration fair and they had lost a child to gunfire in Juarez. And, but God, whatever you do, give them the best mansion in this place because they deserve it. They taught us how to love well. What about this Katie Larson? I said, well, you got to divide up all the universes and planets to all of us. I think she could probably do a great job, Lord, and <laughs> she will be loyal to you. And what about that Josh Larson character? I'm like, well, nine out of ten is not bad, right, God? So, uh, you know, so <laughs> it could be perfect. You know that Titanic song, that famous song by Selena Don, where she says, my heart will go on? Mine won't. My heart won't go on for every single sheep in the fold. So then lastly, I just want to describe my place with y'all. Verses 22 and 23 says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It was so great to hear those words, Henry, because I still believe in the church. Because the church is the fullness of Christ, so the church is my center. Yes, I'm CEO of a nonprofit, but the church is my center. Without the church, it kind of loses its joy for me because it's the greatest organization and organism in the history of the world. It is the biggest. It's the most widespread. It's the most powerful. The church has had the greatest shaping influence upon the globe more than anything else. It's the most diverse organization. It's the most decentralized, and it's the greatest mystery in the history of the world that the church even exists and thrives. And you know what? You can't stop the church. It is unstoppable. 
In an age of narcissism and ego, we have a community that calls you regularly to bow down to the God of the universe. In an age of polarization, we have the church as an instrument of community. In an age of racial division, we have every tongue worshiping together. In an age of consumerism, we have a body sacrificing to bring people out of the pain of poverty, where we're not focused on survival of the fittest, but the thriving of the weakest. That, that is how you change the world. And how does Christ set up this wonderful thing? He sets it up through small local assemblies of people. And in that, he sets up offices. Here in this church, we have the elder model. We have elder and deacon. We believe in the plurality of pastors since day one. We wanted to detox the one-man show kind of idea. So you'll even hear the nomenclature up here is, I'm one of the pastors here. That's always the way it's been. In the New Testament, whenever elders are mentioned in Scripture, it is always in the plural. The church was never run by one man. And every elder for 15 years gets one vote. We always vote for a chair to lead the group, but even that person only has one vote. I served as chair for the first five years. The last 10 years, I have not served as chair. We've also adopted a bivocational elder model, so none of our elders are full-time. Some will work for the church part-time. Some will just volunteer. That's our model. And so I'm stepping out. People say, well, why couldn't you stand as an elder but just not be involved in the day-to-day? That's what I wanted to do. But it was actually a counselor who said, don't do that. Uh, It's time for you to step out and let the culture of the new team form. This will be better for the church than to have you on the team. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm a control freak. You know, like, I don't want to let go. Like, I'm not sure the the church is strong enough or we've got the leadership team in place. And, um, and, And I've come to believe that that was actually the right advice even though I didn't like it or agree. Because the mission is bigger than any one of us. And then some people said, why are you stepping out? You're so young. (laughs) Actually, nobody said that. I just put that in there. But uh, (laughs) I just, you need to know for me, I firmly believe I am not one of the people to lead the church to the next decade. You need a pastoral team to shepherd you who can give you the attention and care that you deserve. And I can no longer serve in that way. And I believe my future is to serve this church and the Denver church in a different capacity. And I also believe there's much to be gained by giving up power when you have the most reasons to keep it. As a leader, you don't want to step out right now. We have the best team. We have the most resources. We have the most exciting future. We have the best morale, the healthiest culture. We're on a growth curve. It's fun to think about the future. But the mission of this church was to be a church for all people, and especially in a multi-ethnic context. We are part of associations around the country, and the number one struggle that people have in the multi-ethnic church is that a white-led multi-ethnic church just becomes white-dominant. It's like a chef's salad, but it's drenched in ranch dressing, right? (laughs) And so, and the underlying culture of everything is still majority culture. So I think if I spent 15 years in prominent leadership, would it not be right the right thing to spend 15 years in relative obscurity simply submitting to an eldership team that is predominantly made up of leaders from underrepresented groups? It is not lost on me that one of our first ministries was delivering Thanksgiving turkey baskets to African refugees. And after next week, I will sit there and be led and submit myself to two African refugee pastors who will lead me on the next journey of my faith. So it's time to step out. 
Well, who will lead us? Well, you have six elders, Josh, Rahil, Juan, Ray, Joseph, and Emmanuel. A new team has formed, and you are in great hands. Four of these six leaders are new within the last two years, and I actually believe that this team actually, when you look at it objectively, will be the healthiest, most diverse, most educated, most unified, and the most pastoral in our history. And I'm just one in a long line of eight other elders, by the way, who've stepped out over the last 15 years. The church is in great hands and will be stronger. And to you men, I've already met with you up in the mountain and gave you my closing words, but I have purchased these books for you here. Uh, it's called The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. I wish Eugene had become my best friend 20 years ago. Uh, but I think if you pastor in the model that Eugene lays out, this church will be a healthy place. You say, well, how is this transition going to work? Well, you haven't been paying attention because it's already done. Uh, <laughs> it's been in motion for well over a year. In the last year, Jen and I were gone for three months. I only preached intentionally only three times this year. I only attended two elders meetings. I did not give my, any input to the new three-year plan for the church. And so this is actually the end of the transition. So if you're new to the church in the last year, you might be wondering what the fuss is all about about Jen and I because we probably haven't connected. And this is actually by design and the way it should be. Well, where are you going, Jason? Are you leaving the church? And the answer is no. And this is probably where I get the most discussion because people say, I've never heard of that before. In fact, my therapist on Friday said, Jason, I was raised in an environment where it was ethical for the pastor to leave the church within the American church. Well, you have to ask yourself, why? And if you ask him why, most people say, because when the pastor retired and stayed in the church, he does a couple of things. Number one, he criticizes the new leadership like crazy. And two, when people complain to him about the new team not being great, he listens to them, it strokes his ego, and the founder becomes a liability to the church. This is what's wrong with the church in America. It is so personality and ego-driven, the church cannot survive leadership transitions. And I believe it's a disease of the Christian church, and it's the primary reason why churches close, because they're built around a leader, not around Christ and a mission. So when that leader goes, the church goes downhill. So in my opinion, the church has moved away from a group of covenanted people, to an, covenanted people on mission to an event on a weekend led by an orator, in which I can be a passive observer as long as the preacher inspires me, then I'm good. This is not the picture of the church in Scripture. So I'm just going to say it right here. I will not be criticizing the new team. I will actually be their biggest supporters. And if you come to me complaining about them or their decisions, I will not listen to you. I will actually give you a speech in the name of Jesus. And if I do the opposite, I'm going public here on the opposite, two things should happen. One, you should discount everything I've told you over 15 years about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I don't have credibility. And secondly... You should discipline me out of the church. It is important to me to model a form of succession that displays the spirit of Christ. I am going to submit to their leadership in all things. It, I trust them. This feels right on so many levels to me. Well, Jason, what are you going to do? It was actually Jay Brenneman who brought up to me that God equips apostles and pastors and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, these five different roles within the church. And he says, you are more of an apostolic leader than a shepherding leader. And so my desire is to be sent from here to the church in Denver to help them on their journey to love their neighbor and to get 50 churches engaged through cross-purpose. And it's a huge challenge in front of me. I was uh, speaking on a panel uh, downtown this week. If you could advance that slide, that'd be great. 
um, when they surveyed the church and said, what are the problems in your community? You look at homelessness, access to healthy food, family instability, affordable housing, lack of income, high crime. Like These are all economic things that basically the church is saying these are problems in our neighbors. Next slide. When they say, who's responsible to fix those? This is a tough slide to unpack. But the top on the left, the green is the church. 57% of the church thinks city council should do it. 52% of the church thinks the mayor should do it. 54% think community residents should do it. Second to the bottom is religious leaders should do it. So two out of every three people sitting in churches don't think the church should be involved in those needs. And so we go over here, who's most responsible for creating meaningful change? 70% of churchgoers are saying the government does. And from the bottom three is religious organizations. So the church is saying, we have huge problems, and the government needs to solve it. Can I say, I think that's a change in the church from 50 years ago. The church, you say, that's our job, government stay out. The church is now saying, this is the government's job. By the way, we have great relations with our local and state government, and we partner with them in work. But my, my problem is the church has abdicated love for neighbor. I think because they pay a tax bill, they're, they're solving it. And then they surveyed churches, the Pew, go to the next slide, the Pew studied the church and said, how does the church view government aid to the poor? They're basically saying 49% say the government does more harm than good. So there's problems, it's the government's job, and they're really screwing it up. That's what the church is saying. Believe me, it'd be way more fun for me to stay as an elder here and just shepherd you than to try to go talk to the church and say, hey, can we reclaim love of neighbor and uh, see something happen in our city? So I'm going to be spending my time doing that. Then what am I going to do here? Well, we are members of this body. We are covenant partners. So in order to have integrity in my life, I have to live out what I believe. I am not part of this church because I'm a leader. I put the ring on to you as a church 15 years ago, and I'm not going for a divorce. It is not my church because I started it. It's because I made a covenant to you. And I want to live out the next lap of my life without any formal power. For 27 years, I've been in front of the church, and I need to go sit and serve. Some ways I desire to serve, I would love to serve entrepreneurs. I'd love to help Christians who are engaging and trying to navigate midlife. I'd love to help some of you parents, as I think it's a really tough time to raise kids. But mostly, I just want to be around I've always loved the illustration of a rock tumbler as a picture of the church. Because the way a rock tumbler works is in this chamber, you put a bunch of rocks, uh, you put some water, you put some grit, uh, and then you turn that on. And as the rocks kind of like roll around each other, they kind of like take off the rough edges. And uh, if you do this long enough, um, they turn into beautiful stones. And when you turn that on, that's mission. And essentially, for 15 years, this gives a new meaning to rock and roll, right? We've been rock and rolling together inside that covenant community. And I pulled some of these rocks out yesterday as I've been doing this in my office. And just the beautiful different stones that are here represents the beautiful diversity of the church. But it takes about 40 days to do this really well to get polished stones. And you add different levels of grit to get the polish up. And how does, how does this become beautiful? It's a lot of micro friction that takes place between the rocks for the beauty to grow. And I feel like for 15 years, I've done packet one and two, the big grit and the medium grit. But I think the, the way for me to grow my stone into the polished piece I want it to be before I see Jesus is that I can 
take packets three and four and do it sitting out there. Because there are certain things that can't be taught unless you let go. So just please let me do that. And, and you've been so kind this year. It's been a huge year. Big 50th birthday party. You gave us three months on sabbatical. We had a 15-year celebration. I've gotten some awards. We have today. That's fine, but I really just need to all stop after today. Um, I say that because it's important to me that the church moves on and that I start learning how to serve and lead in obscurity. I told Patty Brim this morning, I just want to be like your lower back muscle in the body. You can't really see it. It's not the bones. It's not the head. It's not the hands. It's not the feet. It's just there to give support. And sometimes it'll hurt. you got to take care of it. But by and large, it's, this is, it's an unseen strength. And so, so to close, I'm, I want you to know, too, that as I look to the future, I'm not afraid. Why? Because Christ is the head of the church. He is the authoritative leader of the church. The Bible says here he is seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms. The Bible says God has put all things under his feet. At a point in time, he handed over the scepter of the rule of the universe to Jesus Christ, and he is firmly in charge. And the Bible says it is far above all rule and authority. We have presidents, we have kings, we have emperors, we have the G20 summit, we have the United Nations. Jesus is far above all of those entities. And he's far above all about his power and dominion. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness. And the Bible says he's far above all those. And then it says this, he's far above every name that is invoked. When we want to Add credibility to our argument. We invoke a name to bring credibility to us. MLK, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, the Dalai Lama. He is far above. There is no endorsement that sails higher in the world than the endorsement of King Jesus. And the Bible says he's far above. I'm not done yet. He's far above today. The Bible says in this present age, he's far above. That means right now, today, what is happening in the world, he is there. With all the chaos in the world, you would think someone's not in charge. Oh, no, he is. And in some sense, elders, your job is to constantly remind people that what they're seeing on the front page of the news is not ultimate. That the fact that Jesus is far above this present age is what's most important. But then he says it's also in the age to come. He is not elected to office. There is no electoral college debate. There is no stealing of any votes, right? And there are no term limits. And there's no peaceful transfer of power in his economy because he is far above in the age to come as well. There ain't nobody transferring power to King Jesus. It is all under his feet. So rest easy, Providence. He's the authoritative leader of the church, but he's also the organic leader of the church. If I had 10 more years as a pastor, I would tease out this idea that he is the head of the body, that there's this real mystical sense in which a head sits on a real body, and then a cosmic sense that's real. He has chosen to attach himself to people in a way that you, you might describe it as a vine and a branch together, or a temple and stones, with him being the chief cornerstone, or maybe a body with a head. He has placed himself upon you, the church, and you are organically connected to him. And the Bible says he's the filler of the body. He's filling this room today with himself. 
I, I can't think of anything more beautiful than with this group of people for the next 20, 25 years of my life to sit here and walk with the body as, it, as a group, as y'all rest and laugh and worship and cry and serve and recreate and eat and love. That to me is the body of Christ. He's the filler of the body, but then he's the filler of all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The population of the Christian church will be 3.3 billion by 2050. In, 2000, in, in the year 2000, we only printed 54 million Bibles. We are now printing 100 million Bibles uh, a year. Globally, the religious faith is growing faster than all the irreligious. Although in America, faith is on the decline, in the global south, it's taking off. Atheism has lost 10% of their membership globally over the last 50 years. Why? Because you can't stop the all-powerful King Jesus in the church. He is filling all things. I say preachers do three points in a poem, and after 27 years of preaching, I just did three points, I'm going to close the poem. <laughs> after a while, you give up trying to be novel, because there's really nothing novel. So I want to close with the greatest poem written in the world. Philippians says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So then God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So this great text, if our, the person we serve gave up power for the greater good of his church, I have to follow when that call becomes personal. I have no choice but to bow out and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the Lord and the leader of the church that I love. Thank you, Providence. Let's pray. Dear God, we worship you today for what you have done. We acknowledge you as the leader of the church. So Lord, now be with us in the days ahead as we um, take the thing you care most about in the world, your local church and transition the leadership, and we're so grateful for how you've provided. We give you the praise, the glory, and the honor in your name, amen.